Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 190, Alcohol and Anger. Last time, Boynton, needing the money that only crime or the American volunteer group could offer, left the Marines to fly fighter planes against the Japanese operating in China. Hopefully, all his financial worries would disappear, and his marriage would be saved by the reduction of stress. The future seemed bright, as long as Boynton and the other pilots made it safely to Asia. The country that Boynton was sailing away from, not unlike the U.S. today, was full of internal conflict. The Congress was strongly isolationist, this despite Nazi Germany threatening or actually taking over European countries during the 1930s. Furthermore, the Empire of Japan was waging a much less advertised war in China, but the results were the same, which left FDR able to do little as his fellow countrymen were focused on their immediate daily lives, given the effects of the Great Depression, which doesn't make the coming tidal wave of war any less dangerous. Still, in the fall of 1941, besides rising tension in Europe and in Asia, the president could, officially, do little, hence the AVG. It was the best that could be done at the time. Boeington left the Marines on August 8, 1941, and on September 12, he was on his way to San Francisco to be a part of the third, and as it turned out, last wave of 20 pilots for the AVG. Because this was to be a secret, albeit an open one, the pilots boarded a Dutch ship and posed as clergymen, acrobats, or musicians. Boynton was made a priest, and given his track record thus far of fighting, cursing, and drinking, it was as close to God as the 30-year-old had been in his life. On September 24th, the SS Boschfontein left San Francisco, Asia-bound, but the disguised AVG pilots were only a small part of the ship's manifest. Right away, the true situation became obvious to the Javanese stewards, as the pilots come religious brothers consumed vast amounts of alcohol, while the real priests ate food like it was going out of style. Still, the pretense was maintained. As the ship came closer to Asian waters, all were reminded that there was a war out there, no matter how luxurious the accommodations on board were. Each night, the lights were put out, making the ship a less vulnerable target. Next, the garbage generated each day was not thrown overboard until darkness. That way, if a Japanese sub came upon it, the ship would have been long gone by first light. Also, the Bosch Fontaine started a zigzagging course to also elude a hunting sub. Boynton had to do some zigzagging of his own when a younger missionary approached him, asking him why he wasn't at their last meeting, or any of them, for that matter. Boynton stalled as best he could, never giving a direct reason, but always changing the subject. But the young man would not be put off. He next asked Boynton to lead them at Sunday service. Pappy panicked, again drew out his words, which were sprinkled with excuses, and in the end, confused the young man so much, the matter was dropped. 
Boeington tried to stay away from the group for the rest of the voyage, but it was a rather small ship. And yet, there are some things that zigzagging will not help one evade, like an overzealous ex-marine. Are there any other kind? Curtis Smith, an ex-marine captain in charge of the 20 pilots, planned out their entire trip along the lines of military protocol. There were to be duties and watches, and honestly, one of the things that Boynton was happy to get away from was military protocols. But it had followed him on board in the form of Smith, and that man would not take no for an answer. Each day there was formation and roll call, and when Boynton had to take a watch in the crow's nest, well, at least he got away from Smith and that young missionary. So not all bad. After six days' journey, the ship arrived in Hawaii, which allowed the AVG pilots a few hours at Waikiki Beach, but then it was back aboard the Dutch ship and on their way to Java. When the Bosch Fontaine was on its way, it was joined by the cruisers Northampton and Salt Lake City on escort duty, which made the crew feel better as an English radio station in Tokyo announced it knew of the civilian ship's location and who was on board. But that was all temporarily forgotten as it was time to cut loose. When the Bosch Fontaine reached the Coral Sea, the men began the festivities that came along with crossing the equator. They were not able to hold the ceremony on that actual day due to the storms, but now it was time to honor this rather screwball tradition. One pilot, Louis Bishop, posed as King Neptune, Charlie Bond was his beautiful queen, and Dick Rossi was the barber. Fortunately, as there was drink, he shaved everyone with a spoon rather than with a razor. Boeington had to crawl to Neptune's court on his knees, and then he had to hold rotten fish in his mouth, and then drink salt water. Then the newbies, men who had never crossed the equator before, were thrown into the ship's pool. As can be imagined, many vomited or passed out from drink. Boynton, who seemed to need little reason to let loose his anger, almost got into a fight with Robert Keaton, but both were drunk. Overall, there was fun being had and a chance to blow off steam, vital for these pilots who had spent days and would spend more days cooped up on this ship. According to one AVG pilot, that day, every day, went the same. It went like this. Same old routine, wrote Charlie Bond. Breakfast, reading, Chinese lessons, bull sessions, rolling dice for drinks, lunch, nap, shooting dice with Jim and George for a dime, deck tennis, sunbathing, shower, reading, evening formation, dinner, lounge, discussions, and watching the setting sun. And as the days went by, during the drinking part, more and more alcohol was consumed to the point that there were increasingly more scuffles amongst these men, but they would apologize to each other once tempers cooled. Boredom, like many things, has an accumulative and powerful effect. As for Boynton, he spent little time sober, and being drunk, he challenged practically anyone within his vision to a wrestling match. The men quickly learned to avoid this, the missionaries, the real ones, most of all. 
Finally, on October 19th, the Bashfantin arrived at Surabaya, Java. As the AVG pilots were getting off, other AVG pilots were getting on. They told the new arrivals that Chenault's operation left a lot to be desired, as the pilots were only the tip of a very long spear, and that spear was the support crews. If any of that failed, then the tip was practically useless. But Boynton and the others hoped that this talk was just that of the disgruntled, and they would continue on. But as the next trek was not for a few more days, Boynton and some of the other lads sailed to Bali, just off Java's east coast. It was beautiful, with lots of activities for these energetic young men, but what Boynton remembered the most was a jeep ride, not sure who was driving, that ran over a goat and some chickens. And then he witnessed a priest file down a girl's sharp teeth as she was being held down. But he chose to focus on the positives, as he and his comrades enjoyed their few days together. When the Bosch-Fontaine departed Java on October 23rd, it was clearly heading for more choppy waters, war-wise, as the crew mounted three-inch guns on the ship's bow. The war, of which the AVG men had read so much about, was becoming their new reality. On November 4th, the Dutch ship pulled into Singapore at the southern tip of Malaysia. The AVG personnel checked into the swanky Ruffles Hotel, but were told to behave themselves, as the previous American pilots had trashed the place, and the hotel was ready to kick them out at a moment's notice. The men would be in the area for five days before heading on to Burma, so Boynton and company took the opportunity to visit the palace of the Sultan of Johor and use his golf course. But mixed in with all this beauty and tranquility were signs of war. Gun fortifications with sandbags all around, guns on the heights, and signs all over the place pointing to the closest air raid shelter. The pilots read in local newspapers that Tokyo stated that any American pilots captured would be shot on sight. Some were scared, but a few, along with Boynton, were ready to get on with it. Anything was better than having too much downtime and a chance to think over one's family problems. A few days later, the AVG pilots docked at Rangoon, got their first check, and used a considerable portion of it to pay their large alcohol tab to the Dutch ship. Next, it was a train ride north to the city of Tonggu. This third group of American volunteers was finally at the war's edge. The Americans quickly figured out that Tonggu was Hell's version of a beach, without water. It stank, there was intense heat and humidity, and insects were everywhere, of all kinds. The only change from this was torrential rain, and then one lost one's shoes in the resulting mud. One morning, Boynton forgot to check his shirt before putting it on, and was rewarded with a scorpion bite. A lump the size of a cantaloupe appeared on his back soon after. Still, the pilots wanted to get down to brass tacks. Their airfield, the Kaida Aerodrome, was seven miles away from Tonggu in a valley. That airfield was owned by the British, who were trying 
not to upset the Japanese, as they currently had their hands full with the Germans and Italians. Hence, the idea was for the AVG pilots to be trained at Tongu on P-40 fighters, but then the entire enterprise was to move on to China. But this proved impossible, and soon the British were begging the Americans to stay in Burma as Japanese forces got ever closer to Rangoon when the invasion started. Be that as it may, the British had other airfields in country, the second at Mingaladan near Rangoon and one to the northwest of Tonggu at Magwai. But Chenault's plan, after training his men here, was to move them on to his airfields within China itself at Paoshan, Yunani, and Kuming. That way they'd be closer to the front and hopefully dominate the skies over the fighting once it reached that far west. In a short amount of time, Boeington had gone from a nice Dutch ship to a swanky hotel to Kaidaw, which was slightly better than Tonggu, but the humidity was still there. In fact, it was so bad, the tires on the planes had a greatly reduced life, not to mention other parts of the plane. As Boeington's third group of pilots reached Kaidaw, the current pilots gathered around Boeington and asked him, Why in the hell are you here? Did the Marines kick you out? Was it a question of money? But these were not questions of concern, or at least not concern over Boynton's life choices, but their own safety. Many viewed the older Marine, he was pushing 30, as unbalanced, or at least unpredictable, which is not a favorable trait in a comrade in a life-or-death situation. Further, not that these men knew this at first, but Helen had finally divorced Boynton during his boat ride. Another failure. Many of the pilots kept their distance from Boynton, and in return, he from them. But there was a professional reason for Boynton's semi-hostile attitude. With his rank and experience, he should have been made a squadron commander. But as he had come over with the third and final group, none of those positions were open. Still, as a southerner says, it stuck in his craw, which left the Marine with only one happy place, the sky above. Claire Chenault was a determined man who thought things through and then acted as if his goal was the only thing on the planet. Old Leatherface, as the press called Chenault, could be a risk-taker. He certainly loved adventure, but at the moment, there was a job to do, and it was his job to make sure that got done. So, recognizing his collection of odds and ends that were his pilots, when it came to being on the ground, he did not ask for much uniformity, not even uniforms. Only in the skies did he demand a group think and a seriousness, and mostly he got it from his men, but not so much Boynton, who, it must be remembered, his world was collapsing around him again. So it will come as no surprise that Boynton and Leatherface clashed from day one. The older man knew it would be murder to send up one of his pilots in a P-40 unless he was thoroughly trained in that specific aircraft and knew something of Japanese air tactics, whereas Boynton decided he did not need any such training or practice. 
As the classes started, the other pilots quickly realized that Chenault had something real to offer them, and he was trying to keep them alive. It took time, but they realized he was right when he said that the Mitsubishi A6M, the Zero Fighter, had many advantages for their pilots. It had a longer range, was faster, could climb faster, fly higher, and turn more sharply. But no plane was perfect. The plan was to survive long enough against the Zero, take in its weakness, and find a strength of the P-40 that, together, could best the enemy plane. And the men listening to Chenault nodded in agreement. As for the Japanese pilots, Chenault believed he had already worked out their weakness. They were plenty brave, but lacked initiative. They came to the battle with a plan and would not deviate from that. If anything, they tried to force their enemies to conform to it. Their bomber pilots would stay in formation no matter what, and their fighter pilots would always try the same attack plan, no matter the outcome of the previous pilot. So, bringing the unexpected would throw them off. It was something to start with. Then, there was the very real issue of the Zero's lack of armor, which helped with its speed and maneuverability. Getting close, getting some shots before you are shot down yourself, and the game might be turned on these seemingly invincible Japanese planes. And yet, between Chenault's exercise regiment, the men had been on a boat for 50-something days, drinking hard with little activity, and his listing of the Zero's capabilities, some of the pilots quit early on and got a boat back home. But Boynton stayed, as he needed the money. But his pride in his physical prowess felt itself challenged by both the demand of exercise and the courage needed to take on an adversary that had a better flying machine. Those that remained heard from Leatherface hit and run dozens of times each day. Keeping it simple, Chenault wanted his men to get higher than the zero, dive down, pick one within the formation, make a passing shot, go past them, then rise up and do it all over again. What he did not want, he stressed, was a horizontal fight where the zero had distinct advantages. As for when and if, because it would happen, a zero got on your tail, Chenault advised pulling a split S power dive and then counting on the P-40's superior dive speed to successfully pull away. In other words, the pilot would execute a half roll, now flying upside down, and then he would point the nose at the ground to start a descending half loop. The half circle would put the plane parallel to the ground, now right side up. Yet he would be going very fast and had to watch for crashing into the ground. So put the plane on its back and then complete a half circle to be heading in the exact opposite direction. When all this was done, it set the pilot up with speed and space to either ascend or chase another enemy plane. Also, Chenault wanted the men to fly in pairs so they could look out for each other. Surprises were never a good thing up there. To many of the American pilots, this was all sound advice to hopefully get them back to the ground, safety. Though not all the British airmen agreed with this. 
One British officer posted a notice that said, anyone who dove at the enemy, shot, and then veered away, was guilty of cowardice and would be punished. To the old school mentality, two warriors were to meet on equal terms and then let the best man win. Problem was, with the Zero's capabilities, this would end, mostly, in Japanese victories, and expensively trained British, Commonwealth, and Chinese pilots dying for nothing. Chenault stuck to his guns. The most honorable thing about war, to him, was winning. Boeington probably felt the same way, but he disagreed with many of Chenault's ideas, and did so publicly which was a big mistake. Chenault was open to new ideas, anything to gain an advantage over the enemy. But what he would not tolerate was open disobedience and disrespect. Whether he meant it or not, Boynton offered up both when questioning the leader during group meetings. As things stood now, Boynton would never become a squadron leader. But underneath it all, Chenault's lessons were sinking into Pappy in his calmer moments, and soon the former Marine was dying to try out some of his leader's ideas. As the next few weeks went by, the new AVG pilots, now that formal classes began to die down, spent much more time in the air. The problem was, the AVG had a set number of planes and spare parts, so all needed to be careful, which did not always happen as the third group of pilots was trying to learn to fly the P-40. In one day, six planes were damaged as those pilots overshot the runway. Boeington was guilty of this himself, but was able to pull up and out and fly around to try again. But considering how much heat he had given Chenault, the leader now had something specific to chastise the angry pilot with, and he would use it. But more than that, as Boeington had made an enemy of the leader, now the other pilots sized up his flying ability and were less than impressed. Their amnity against him rose, which caused Boynton to shut down even more. Yet the animosity against Boynton faded as Chenault decided it was now time to break up his merry band into three squadrons of 18 aircraft each. As it was, the first squadron, called Adam and Eve's, of which Pappy belonged, would be led by Robert Sandy Sandell. Second squadron, or the Papa Bears, was led by John Newkirk, which left Arvid Olsen as the leader of the third squadron, or Hell's Angels. Further, Chenault told everyone he would soon move his headquarters to Kungming, China. And then, the overall identity of the Flying Tigers was formed, when a pilot came back from a break with a British magazine that showed Australian aircraft with the mouth of a tiger shark painted on its nose. The other pilots loved this intimidating look and had their support staff painted on their planes. But it would still be a while before Chenault's men were referred to as the Flying Tigers. Chenault did everything, including prey, to make sure his precious P-40s were not damaged during all these drills. Still, it happened, and the only good thing to come of it was that his existing planes now had more spare parts, as they were not forthcoming from the U.S. Boeington, being a Marine, like the Navy pilots, 
had never flown a P-40 before it was used by the Army, which made takeoffs and landings age Chenault visibly. And Pappy was vocal about not being impressed with this relatively heavy fighter, again agitating Chenault. But during a mock dogfight on November 20th, the P-40 beat the British-made Brewster Buffalo in every category that mattered. The pilots started to think better of their armored fighter that had two 50 caliber and four 30 caliber machine guns that could spit out bullets faster than the Zero's two 7.7 millimeter machine guns and two 20 millimeter cannons. But drink was never far from Pappy's hand, as he was being called, mostly due to his age. He performed admirably during the day at flight practice, but days off and nights saw him with the ever-present beer or whatever was to hand. His drinking bouts can be summed up in two episodes. First, he was found one night drunk, pulling a rickshaw with the normal puller sitting in the seat, looking confused. Pappy told everyone he was just trying to get some exercise. The second episode was when the intoxicated former Marine decided to wrestle a wandering cow. The man won, as the cow probably didn't care, but the other pilots were starting to wonder if the Marines had been right to get rid of this wild card. As the war loomed ever closer, the Japanese now had troops in northern Indochina, which would allow them to swoop down to the south and west, coming ever closer to the Thailand-Burma border. The pilots, because of this, became more edgy. Clearly, if war broke out soon, the Japanese planes they were hearing about would soon be able to threaten Kunming and Rangoon. But as the international tension rose, Pappy became more focused, as in he felt more comfortable with chaos closing in, which was probably a product of his childhood. Chaos, to him, was normal, so he focused on what he did when he was younger, surviving, and that meant getting better in his P-40. During the week before Pearl Harbor, Pappy went up for a mock dogfight every chance he got. Oh, he still drank, but most times when he was up in the air, he was cold and calculating, winning the bout. Other times, he was too aggressive and overcommitted himself, allowing his opponent to get in close behind him for the kill shot. But he was learning. Chenault and his pilots learned of the attack of Pearl Harbor at 7 a.m. on December 8th, due to the time difference. Boeington, from all accounts, had one of the shortest periods of being shocked and seemed to slide right in to the desire for revenge, which is exactly the attitude that old Leatherface needed, as he expected to be attacked at any moment, now that war had been declared. But something more than just focus was happening inside Pappy, according to an officer's wife, who spent many hours talking to him, as most men stayed away from Boynton and her, but for different reasons. She said that Pappy was just shy of delighted after Pearl. Not only could he really finally test himself, no more mock battles, but when he did well, not if, it would shut up all those around him, and he would earn back some of the respect that he thought he was due. 
Like the decision to come here seemed to have no downside, once again, the coming battle seemed about to take care of all of his problems. Of course, the decision to head to Burma was far from perfect, but Boeington now, like then, was focused on the positive. He was being his own support cast, because in reality, he had so few. As for the pending Japanese attack on Burma, Chenault had been wrong. Yes, the Japanese were now just under 200 miles away, but the eastern skies stayed quiet. The ABG had no radar, so compensated with lookouts scattered in all directions. Still, it was a big disadvantage concerning the enemy had already hundreds of hours of combat experience earned in China. Still, each day some of the Flying Tigers went up on patrol, while the rest were waiting, if needed, but again, things stayed quiet. On December 10th, the fighting in Thailand was all but over. The enemy was now in control of a country that touched Burma's eastern border. But on that same day, the British asked Chenault for his help in defending the skies over Rangoon. Leatherface reacted by having his third squadron, Hell's Angels, move there. Meanwhile, the other two squadrons were to move on to Kunming, on the far side of Burma's northeast border. Kunming had been quiet, relatively speaking, but Chenault guessed that soon Japanese planes would be seen overhead. Kunming is where the Burma Road comes to an end, and that was now the only way that Chiang Kai-shek would receive Western supplies. And that's where Pappy and the two squadrons were headed for on December 18th. The flight was 670 miles long and over some of the roughest terrain the pilots had ever seen. They all agreed that to have to make an emergency landing anywhere there would have been a death sentence. Still, all the planes made the trip safely. And the pilots were told two things after climbing out of their fighters. First, the area had a decent air raid warning system, as the Japanese were forced to fly over other cities to get here. Hence, early warnings were called in. And two, the city had been bombed that very morning, which is why the pilots spotted so many holes in the airstrip they had just used to land. But the holes were quickly filled in, which only left when would the enemy come back and would their bombers have fighter protection, as the Japanese had gotten used to dominating the skies over the eastern half of China. Someone, whether the AVG or the Japanese, were in for a surprise when the next attack came.